Thank you for that reading. That's a, that's a great story from the book of Acts, isn't it? It's just really dramatic. Love it. I wish I was preaching on that one this morning. But I'm really happy about what I am preaching on, which is in John 17:20. I'd like you to find it on page 1071 of your Sanctuary Bible. Page 1071. A little word of introduction about this passage of Scripture right now. This takes place just after the Last Supper, so it's after the meal has ended. And it's part of what is called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. It's a prayer to God with the other people in the room, but it's on their behalf, or at least part of it is. So just try to imagine that you're in the room with Jesus and he engages in this intense prayer of conversation and pleading and communion with his Father, and you get to be there to watch this happening. The, the conversation between the God of the universe and his one and only Son, and you're there. Not only that, but part of this prayer is about you. Wouldn't that be interesting to be there? I mean... We kind of just read this as a prayer, but this is a really tense, in a good way, moment of incredible power and glory that's happening all around them. And partly, as I said, it's about them. So you can see why this was etched in their memories and why it became such a big part of the Gospel of John. And this is also what makes John's Gospel really quite unique among all the Gospels. Because five chapters... 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Five chapters alone are about the Last Supper and, and the hour or so after it. So that about a three, four hour period of time is covered in five out of the 21 chapters of John. Isn't it interesting that time gets kind of expanded for John? So almost a quarter of his whole book is devoted to a span of just a few hours. Compare that to Jonah, for example. Four chapters to describe an arc of a story that lasts several weeks, many weeks, right? Uh, and, and a lot of narrative going back and forth. Or compare it to the Gospel of Mark, which doesn't even bother with the birth of Jesus. It just goes straight into the life and ministry of Jesus because it's really in a hurry. Praise be to God that we have a Gospel like John that slows down and takes its time. And so here we're treated to this beautiful prayer that, uh, you know, we were talking this morning in, in Sunday school. By the way, we have Sunday school on Sunday mornings. Uh, we start at 9.30 and we go to 10.15. And it's a really great time. We just finished the book of Hebrews. It's been great. But we were, one of the things that the author of Hebrews wrote was, I'm sorry I had to be so brief. Which is funny because there's 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews. It's one of the longest texts in the whole New Testament. The reality is that paper was not cheap back then. It was written on lambskin, parchment. It was kind of expensive. And you would get pieces and you'd, you'd uh, sort of stitch them together with thread. And you'd make longer ones and you'd roll them up. So it wasn't easy to, to, to take the time and the energy and the expense to write long things. It was really an investment. And the reality is that John invested a huge amount of time and energy and space, which meant a lot of resources, just in describing this beautiful meal and the time afterwards in five long chapters, or almost a whole quarter of his entire book. So, 
In fact, in chapter 17, the whole chapter is a prayer, and we're only going to see a little part of it. So with that introduction, um, perhaps to bring us into awe over what we're about to hear, that's what we're going to read. John 17, 20 through 26. Let's read. Jesus prays, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's talking about his disciples. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you especially for this word on this day, this word of supplication to you on behalf of Jesus' followers. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we often think of this as a prayer for Christian unity. Jesus is praying to God about his disciples, and he's asking God, make them one, make them united in me, just as in, in the same ways that you and I are one. So I want to maybe step back a little bit and ask the question, what does the word one, this is kind of like, Really a crazy question. What does the word one mean? Hmm? It can mean the number one, and it's used that way sometimes in the Bible. But it has a, a much larger encompassing meaning to it. And we, we need to go all the way back to Deuteronomy 6.4. This is known as the Shema, the hear, O Israel. That Shema is the Hebrew word for hearing or listening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is One. Now, if you look, now what does that mean? Again, kind of layers upon layers here. What does that mean? There's actually, if you look in the New International Version, which you have in the pew before you, if you go to that verse, you can find there's a little superscripted letter after that, which is what's called a translator's note or a textual note. And you look at the bottom of the page, and it gives you possible variations as to what this might mean or how you could translate it. And the, so one of the translations is, the Lord our God is one Lord, that he's only one. Or, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, one Lord. Or, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. All of these kind of point to this idea of oneness, but here's the, kind of the overarching theme that you get that doesn't translate well in just one word, one, but that when we're talking about God as being one, it means that he's unitary, that he's unique in all of the cosmos. So there is no other God 
like our God. Oneness in this sense means that he's unique. There's nothing, he's one God, and there are none others like him. In fact, there are none others at all in reality. And that he has in his uniqueness this incredible power that has not been seen in the world, and he has incredible and special significance that is nowhere matched in the world. So it's both unique and life-changing and universe-altering, and it means that he has also, that there's just one of him. Okay, so this concept of oneness, or being one, translates into the New Testament, too. And so you, I'm going to read to you a few verses that you've probably heard before, but they use the word one in, in similar ways and kind of give us more depth to the meaning. And I'm excited about this. I'm sorry, but I just think it's great. If you look at Mark chapter... Don't have to look it up, because I'll read it for you. Mark chapter 10, 21, although if you're taking notes, you could jot this down. Mark chapter 10, 21, a rich young man comes to Jesus, wants to follow him. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, One thing... You lack, he said. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. There's this sense of oneness in that there's only one unique thing that this man has to do. He has to give his life over to Jesus. Luke 10, 41, where Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha. And Jesus says to Martha, 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 you are worried and upset about many things, but only... One thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And you could argue that that one thing that Mary has found, that Martha has not yet found, is Jesus himself. He's there in their presence. Mary is at his feet listening to him teach. Martha is off doing something else. Important things, but yet the more important thing was standing in his presence when we talk about the law, the law also has this sense of oneness and uniqueness, and it has this power. And so often in the scripture we get this idea that um, all of the law is, is required for us to keep it. And breaking the law in any small way is a breaking of the entirety of the law. So there's no pulling apart the law to take away from its wholeness, its oneness, and to say, these laws I will keep because I, maybe I'm good at keeping these laws. So I'll be honest with you, I've never robbed a bank. Okay? So I could make my own list of all the, all the great laws that I've never broken. Well, actually, I did steal a 25 cents from my sister's purse once, but I told her about it. So I guess I robbed a piggy bank, but not a, not a bank like a federal bank. Okay? I picked a bad example. So let me think. What, what else have I? I've never murdered anyone. And this, you should know this about your pastor. I've never murdered anyone. Okay, I guess this could go on all day, but so you get the idea. But I could, there's a whole bunch of other things that I, you know, so I can't really go and say I have kept the law because the law is one. It's a unity. So if I break even a small part of the law, the scriptures tell us that I've broken the whole law. Its oneness cannot be compromised by my decisions or my thinking. Are you guys beginning to see how this concept of one is working in the New Testament? So if you look at, for example, James 2. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. That's James 2.10. Galatians 5.14, the entire law is summed up in a single one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. 
So, in the, the narrative of Christians, and this is, is true in, in the book of Acts, but also um, in the Gospels when Jesus says to his disciples, could you not stay awake for just one hour? You know, just a little while. There's this sense of the oneness of this moment in time where opportunity is had to be faithful. So power is given to evil for one hour. In one hour, a a catastrophe can descend on all sides and in all forms. And so early Christians had a really, really comprehensive sense of the meaning of the word one in ways that we've lost. It's really fascinating, okay? I think it's great. So... This isn't the only thing. Um, and so in, in all those senses that I've mentioned, the word one means sort of all-encompassing in importance and in value. It means an inviolability. I say that word is very hard to say. Inviolability of its unity and integrity that cannot be pulled apart. And it also means that it's the, it's the intersection of all of history and everything matters about this one thing, whether it's an hour of time in which you have to make a decision, or the hour that Jesus, the hours that Jesus was hanging on the cross, where all of history was converging to that point in time, and then all of history moved out from that point of time, that unity of space around the cross. That's all present in the New Testament understanding of this word one that Jesus uses to describe his relationship with the Father. Also, and this is the last kind of I'll say about this is that, um, or it's the beginning of the next, actually, is that one, this idea of one, especially in the Gospel of John, has an organic sense. There's this organic imagery, and one of the most obvious ways is when Jesus talks about the vine. I am the vine, you're the branches. We're connected. We're one because we have this lifeblood flowing through us, and we have this organic connection to, to each other. So, we know a little bit more now about this concept of unity or oneness in the New Testament and some in the Old Testament. To, to now ask the question, how are Jesus and the Father one? Because this is the key to understanding how he wants his disciples to be one. Remember what he says. May they be one just as you and I are one. So if I want to be one with all my brother, uh, Christian brothers and sisters... I want to understand how Jesus is one with the Father. So how are Jesus and the Father one? Well, they're connected organically, right? That makes sense? Just as fathers and sons are connected organically. If you have a child, you are connected organically with that child in many, many, many ways, not least genetically and otherwise. But they're also connected spiritually because they have the Spirit of God in common, the Holy Spirit, whom we call the Holy Spirit. They have a functional unity because they created the world together. Jesus was present and co-creator with God, as we read in John's Gospel, with the Father at the beginning of the time. But they are also distinct from each other. They are not the same thing. They're not the same one, but they yet are one. And I'm going to have to ask you to suspend disbelief, I guess, or just, it's kind of when we talk about the Trinity, it's like, we could talk about it for 10 hours, and we still, it's not inside our human brain's ability to really fully comprehend it, okay? So let's just give that as a given. 
But this is the same with, with Jesus and the Father. Is while they're one and they have a unity, yet they are distinct. They're distinct. They have distinct other features about themselves that are different. And so the Father sends the Son to the cross. Right? There's a separation of function and work going on there. Jesus prays to the Father, may this cup pass from me. Well, no, it's not going to. And so they have conversations with each other. They have their father and son, but they have a unity that's bound up in their uniqueness and their unique ability to transform all of history. So what I like to think of is that... um, How funny. They are... um, they're differentiated, but they're connected at the same time. And so I want to give you an example about this. Um, and this is just an example from my family, and I'm betting that your family is the same. If you have siblings. I have three siblings. I'm the youngest of four. I'm amazed. I really am still amazed at how different we all are. There are two girls and then two boys. So my oldest sister's name is Lisa, and then Marit was the next and then my brother, older brother, is Carl Martin, and, and then me. And we're all about two, three years apart from each other. We are so different from each other. We look a little bit alike. In fact, my brother and I look a lot alike. And once I fooled his kids into thinking that I was, he was, I was him. And then he saw, they saw both of us together, and they got really kind of upset, like, which is my real father? It was really kind of funny. Um, so we look alike. But we're so different. We have vastly different interests. What interests us in life is different. We have very different careers. I'm the only pastor in the group. My brother's been a teacher. My sister Marit works for NASA and has a PhD in medical bioscience or something like that. Uh, And my sister Lisa is a professional musician. Can you think of a different, any kind of different, I mean... If one of us was a ditch digger, then it would really be kind of different, right? But we're all different, so different from each other. Um, We have our spouses are all quite different from each other. So when eight of us get together, it's just very interesting to add that other mixture into it. Um, So we're all different, and, and we're differentiated. And this is an important concept. We're differentiated in the sense that while we're connected to each other, We don't absolutely need each other to survive, which may sound like a bad thing, but I think it actually is a good thing. And so the reality is that I can survive in life without my brother being on this planet. And that I I don't mean that in any bad way at all, except that it just means that I have an independence uh, into my own life that doesn't depend on him being in my life or being connected to me although it's good to be connected to him. And as we all get older, we're going to have to come up against this reality that one by one, that there's, eventually there's just going to be one of us left. And so we are going to have to live without our siblings. So we're connected to each other, and yet we're differentiated enough so that our, our um, survival and our functioning in life isn't impaired by somebody else being present or not. But for all those ways that we're different, yet There's this unity that pervades our family. Why? We have the same ancestors, right? We have the same common experiences. We can all remember some family events, some family trips to Disneyland or things like that. Those are all memories that we share. We have shared memories of our parents. We We actually have similar traditions to each other. 
We have similar worldviews, although that changes a bit as we kind of spread out into this world. And so this is the sort of thing I want you to hold in tension, is that people can be different from each other, and yet they can all be part of one family. And so we have this idea of unity in the Christian church. Sometimes we think that means that we have consensus at all times and that we agree on all things, right? Uh, that's not actually what unity looks like. That's not, that's not how it works. One, one example, I guess, is that you could take two cats. Have you heard this before? You could take two cats and you could tie their tails together and you could throw that over a clothesline and you would have unity. You would have union, at least. They would be connected to each other, but you would not have unity at all, would you? Because what would those cats be doing to each other? <laughs> Don't do this to cats. No cats were harmed in the making of this sermon, I hope, or in the living out of it. But be nice to cats. But just being connected to each other doesn't mean you agree with each other. doesn't mean that you don't fight with each other. This being connected to each other isn't an automatic proof of unity or anything like that. Now, it, we shouldn't be like cats who are tied up to each other either. You know, we, don't, we, don't want to, we don't want to be like that. Um, I'm stumbling a little bit here, I'll be honest, because I printed out all four pages of my, of my sermon, and my, this, I did not forget my sermon in my printer. My printer just printed out the last two pages as blank, so I'm going from memory here. But here's what I want to do. Um, the, the Christian church that Jesus wants to be in unity about, he doesn't want us to agree, to agree on everything, because that's actually impossible for humans. But he does want to agree on the oneness of him and the Father and the uniqueness of what Jesus has done in the world. And so we can disagree about, if you go in the fireside room, some of you might like one sign and some of you might like one, one other sign. Or some of you might like one landscape plan and some of you might like, like another landscape plan. We don't have to agree on those things. We do kind of have to agree on the central thing. We have to agree on Jesus, his uniqueness, his inviolability and the integrity of his work for us on the cross. We have to agree on that or we don't really have essential unity as Christians. But we can disagree about a whole host of other things and that's fine. Jesus doesn't ask us uh, to agree on all those things. I want to bring your attention to something in your bulletin this week. and it's, Sometimes it's in the bulletin and often we use it at other times. Uh, it's near the end. It's called the Compass for Community. And in fact, would you take it out? Because this could be a great exercise uh, for all of us. We've been using this for several years now in our life together in the church. Um, and it's, we call it a behavioral covenant or a compass for community. It's not really a set of rules. We don't enforce it or anything like that. We don't punish people who don't keep it. It's more like a reflection of what life looks like when we are unified together with Christ at our head. And it reflects some New Testament realities of what life looks like when we're followers of Jesus. And um, I think it's just a great list. And I'd like us actually to read it together. And, and the idea is that we don't, like I said, it's not a rule book that we apply. But we read it together before we have meetings and the idea is that it creates this culture where this is kind of what normal looks like. This is kind of what, the, what business as usual we want to look like. And then when stuff comes up that causes us to think, then we go, sometimes we find ourselves going back to this list and going, 
oh, you know, that, that, I saw this really working here, or maybe that didn't line up with one of these, so let's examine it a little more. And I want to tell you that uh, many people have come and just said, thank you that we have this. Thank you that we have this. It's been really helpful to me, that's them speaking, that we have this together. It really kind of just sets the tone for what we do. So actually, I'd like us to read it together. And um, see, this is, if we want practical ideas about what Christian unity looks like, I think these are some practical reflections of what unified Christian community looks like in the, in the correct sense. And honestly, we'll get to a point where... Um, if you look at um, the third from the last, it says, we accept disagreement, conflict, and evaluation as normal and natural. That totally embodies the sense that we are going to disagree with each other. That's normal for the body. We don't disagree about who Christ is and what he's done. But on other things, we can disagree, we can be in conflict, we can evaluate each other, ourselves and our own behavior and what, what's going on in the church. So... Let's read this together. Will you all read it with me, please? I'd appreciate it if you did. At Foothill Covenant Church, we agree to yield to the direction of the Holy Spirit. We seek to build each other up and not tear down. We respect and honor the office of pastor and other lay leaders. We seek to communicate clearly, completely, and directly. We offer our opinions with charity and humility. We make positive investments in each other's lives. We seek to discover what is best for our church as a whole, not what may be best for us or for some small group in the church. We accept disagreement, conflict, and evaluation as normal and natural. We believe the best of each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt. We are committed to being inconvenienced for the gospel. Well, what I found is that by following these sort of practical things, I've achieved, uh, by the grace of God, a certain level of peace as your pastor, which is wonderful. It feels great. Um, and uh, I'm trying to live these out. I make mistakes, but I'm trying to live these out. Um, and I think that's going to be a big part of our unity together as followers of Christ is being connected with each other, staying connected, but also staying uh, keeping ourselves differentiated in, into what we're doing and, and, and um, who we are in our own identity. I'm going to say one last thing, and I'm just thinking, the spirit is working right now. There might be a reason that my last two pages are blank, and it's clearly it's a computer bug because they weren't blank in my document. Um, but maybe God wanted me to stop talking right now. And so I, I'm going to take that as a sign. And some of you are saying, Amen, hallelujah. No. You don't have to hear those last two pages, but, um, you know, maybe that was enough. It was enough. And that we praise God that Jesus cared about his disciples so much to say this prayer in their presence. And his hope for all of his followers is that they would be united around him and in the purposes for which he sent them into the world. So with that, let's say amen.